Check one, two, three, four, five. Hi, it's Jackie Tantillo, and I'm trying to get in touch with my friend Jody Miller Alcott from Hopewell, New Jersey. She's expecting my call, so let's see what we can do, see if she's around. She's going to have some pretty great stories to tell us about her mom, I'm sure. Hello? Hey, Jody, it's Jackie Tantillo. Hi, Jackie. How are you doing? Thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's perfect timing. I just got to see my mother this morning, so a lot of uh, thoughts have been running through my head. Oh, perfect, perfect, perfect. Uh, Tell us your mom's name first. Uh, My mother's name is Louise Moon Miller. Does she have a nickname? Well, when she was growing up, I think it was Mooney, and then when the first grandchild was born, she couldn't say Grandma Louise, so it became Lulu, and she absolutely hates that, and we all call her it. (laughs) It's funny how that happens. (laughs) Oh, I love Lulu. Does she she not like the Grandma part or the Lulu part or the whole thing? (laughs) Well, I think it's the whole part, but she answers to it, so there you are. <laughs> and and she is of, of magical age, I believe, your mom. Well, she is. She turned 104 this year. Oh, my gosh. 104. I know. She's, I can only imagine the stories we're going to talk about. She's seen a lot. She's lived through a lot. Well, you know, she has, Jackie, because having been born in 1916, that put her at about 13 years old when the Depression hit, you know, starting in around 29. So that stretch of time between the Depression and the beginning of World War II, that decade, she was 13 to 23, you know, really formative years. And she grew up in um, the middle of Pennsylvania, in Kingston, Pennsylvania, and the Depression hit very hard out there. Were they her farmers? Her fa- were they farmers? Her or? father actually, yeah, her father actually was a banker in Kingston, and uh, so, the, needless to say, in the Depression, he really struggled, and that led her to follow her sister into nursing school to try to, uh, you know, create some income, and of course, then that put her into an active service duty in the uh, World, World War II. II. So when you say Kingston, is that Kingston, New York, or Kingston, Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania, cold Pennsylvania. country. Yeah. Wow, that must have been intense. You think about how it was in cities and, and people taking their lives out of desperation, no food to feed their family, and the, the people in the country in the middle of nowhere... Was, Absolutely, yeah. and there were epic. Flo- there was epic flooding. I remember her talking about, which led her to volunteer for the Red Cross, and then that also made her realize that her skills were needed. And so she started her training at Walter Reed Hospital, and then she was sent to San Francisco, where she started to work with what a group of surgeons from Stanford 
and they created the 59th EVAC hospital. So that uh, group of people, it's basically like a MASH unit, just like we saw on our popular television show. Just like it. It it is. I mean, you know, Hawkeye's running around now. um, Oh, my gosh, how commendable. Well, I have all these photos that she has, and... The art direction on that television show was really well done. It looks just like it, these mm-hmm. evac hospitals and whatnot. But uh, she uh, she was a surgical nurse, did a lot of anesthesia right on the front. Uh, they were bringing, you know, soldiers in, and uh, triage was, you know, a focus. And the interesting thing is that I've realized one of the things that she really impressed upon me in her own way, I now refer to as personal triage. And I use it with my kids all the time. So whenever there was a stressful situation when I was growing up, she handled it by immediately encouraging me to put it in perspective. Right, going into that boom, that focus mode and... Yep, and, you know, just I literally would run through the list of this isn't life or death. No one is bleeding. I do not need to call for immediate assistance. I need to assess the situation from a perspective, a problem-solving perspective. Well, that's and good. It was, Start thinking on your feet, was, right? Yeah, it was really great. And, you know, I do the same thing when my kids call with a moment of panic, and I, I realize I do the same thing. And I realized that that's how I learned it, through my mom's, um, her lens, her perspective. How many siblings do you have? I have two older sisters. So there were three girls growing up in suburban uh, Pennsylvania and uh, just north of Philadelphia. It was a pretty emotionally uneven household during that period of time. Um, my father is very difficult, and so is one of my sisters. So it was always uh, my mom attempting to keep the peace, keep the peace, keep the peace. Mm. And I was the youngest, so I was often just kind of quiet, trying to stay out of the squabbles. And my mom and I learned we uh, this just ability to communicate with just looking at each other's eyes to eye, you know, and I would know... Don't engage, pull back, don't stir the pot, and just with these glances. And so I would try that with my kids, but my kids would go, why are you looking at me like that? (laughs) They'd blow your cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it didn't translate. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I've been in that same situation. I'm trying to like send a signal, either that my kids or my husband, Rick, who you know. And they're like, what are you doing that funny face for? Like, what? I know, and it's like, well, I can't kick you under the table at the moment. <laughs> but even the other day, my mom did it to me. She gave me this look, and I went, oh, okay. <laughs> really funny. Other than her sister, did she have other siblings? She has had an older sister, and she had a brother, but he died very young from hemophilia. So oh, that was no. Her. Yeah, you know, you don't hear about that too often, Um and the but only son. Her, yeah, the only son. Yeah. But um, she uh, she had a pretty idyllic uh, childhood until things 
you know, started to to become extraordinarily difficult on the American front. But, um, you know, it's interesting because just, you know, last year I was able to chat with her about a few things. Her hearing is really uh, not great, but she did tell me for the first time that she had never really wanted to be a nurse. She became a nurse out of necessity. She always wanted to be an artist which was so interesting because I'm an artist. So I realized how much she had encouraged me to pursue that, and now I kind of know why, because she was living vicariously through me a little bit. So when you were growing up, she encouraged you, and yet you had no idea because she always had this, um, you know, label or the little nurse hat on, and she would, oh, her dreams... Her dreams, her dreams. But you have, we'll get into talking about your art in a little bit. So that's pretty great. So are you who you are because of or in spite of your mother? Oh, definitely because of. Definitely because of. For many reasons. Uh, Yeah, for many reasons. And, you know, I think there were a lot of, uh, a lot of things that happened to her when she was in the war and basically having to push through so many difficult situations. And, you know, what I was referring to earlier is triage. She came home from the war with a woman's perspective through the lens of having served as the surgical nurse. It was very different than a lot of women who hadn't served. Uh, You know, she did what they did. She started having her kids and making a home and whatnot, but there was a disconnect that she felt socially with the women that she became friendly with because in the back of her mind was all of this experience and all of this basically difficult post Stress trauma. I was going to say PTSD. Yeah, PTSD. I mean, and she had to go and you know play the little mommy role and be all happy. Yep, put on the put on the apron and bake those cookies. But the soldiers did the same thing. Sorry to interrupt. The soldiers. My dad was in World War II with Patton, and he they never spoke about it. I got him to talk about it twice when we were taking a, a long trip in the car. Was he reluctant to talk about it his just, experience? Yeah, oh, most certainly. Yeah. And yet he had his younger, he was one of three boys, and the younger brother, youngest brother, was also in Europe at the same time. So he would tell the story of how his captains or whoever surprised him and got the brother to come and spend some time with his regiment, you know. so Wow. Just to, which was pretty great. He was a, the Army Corps of Engineers, and he worked with Patton building the bridges so yeah. the soldiers could get over the river before the Germans blew them all blew, up. Blew them up. Or right after they uh, were blown up, he had to rebuild them. Unbelievable stories. So, go, yes, mom, I, yeah, we digress. Well, Your mom? My mother had a, a great Patton story as well. So, um, you know, I think those of your uh, listeners who may have seen the movie by George C. that George C. Scott portrayed Patton in remember the the dramatic uh, slapping patient slapping scene that uh, was so had so much impact. Well, 
my mom was there at the time, and the patient that was depicted in the film in a full body cast was accurate, and that was actually my mom's patient. And the slapping incident was in the next tent. So uh, everyone there was very aware of it and uh, really, you know, pretty much traumatized by it. It really, you know, kind of threw everybody. It was really difficult. But there was a little, a lot of pushback on many levels after that because it, it angered them. And one of the pushbacks was the women had said, enough, we are exhausted, we are working to our full capacity, and we cannot do the best job wearing skirts, these tight little pencil skirts. And so they put this petition in that they wanted to be able to wear trousers, and it was rejected, it was rejected, and they pushed again, it was rejected. Well, I guess time went by, and the 59th EVAC Hospital moved to a different location in Italy, and it was quiet. It was a little quiet period of time, and they all were allowed to have the evening off, and they, or at least a percentage of them were. And they were strolling into town, walking into town, and Patton was in his Jeep, which coincidentally was being driven by my husband Townsend's father's cousin, but that's who married Townsend and I, but that's just a coincidence. No way. Oh, oh I know. We found that out <laughs> later. It was so funny. But he's Patton's driving along or, you know, and going into town as well, and all of a sudden there's an unexpected air raid. Well, Patton jumped into action, ordering everyone to hit the dirt and hit the ditches and get down. And being very protective and very capable, and he all of a sudden looked around, and all the men were covering their heads, as they should have been, and all the women were on the ground tugging at their skirts, trying to get their skirts down. Oh, my gosh. They weren't exposed. And the next day, women weren't allowed to wear pants. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Just, just, yeah, it's yeah, mm. a pretty funny story. Did she ever talk about any of her fellow surgical nurses? Did she keep in touch with them, or did they well, all wind yeah. up having children at the same time and and growing nope. old together? She, you know, it's really funny because she didn't, and just recently, as in with the past maybe three, four years, one of her great nieces just was really interested in looking at a variety of different sources uh, of genealogy. And online, she found the 59th EVAC Hospital, some children uh, of uh, those nurses and doctors had put together this website called Dear Folksies. And it has letters and pictures, and it had bios of everybody. So she sent it around, and I found it, and I took, went over to my mom, and I showed my mom on the computer, and she remembered all these people. And then recently, I told them that she was celebrating her birthday, and I've been corresponding with them and sending them pictures 
and uh, for her birthday, it was so great. At least 30 people who were relatives of the doctors and the nurses, because my mom has pretty much outlived everybody, uh, sent all these notes and pictures, and it was really sweet. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, I got the chills thinking about that. It was neat. Um, you know, I just sent her yesterday this picture I had found of Martha Ray visiting the troops and standing there with her mink coat on and her big corsage and with all of these nurses in these grubby uniforms. Getting you know, ready to do surgical work. <laughs> or maybe they were up all night and, you know, it was just like the the disconnect there. But I mean, you know, they attempted to entertain him, and that that there's value in that. Give him a moment of lightheartedness. But did your mom ever see any of the USO tours? Yep, she did, and uh, you know, I think it was uh, I th- I think it was always appre- appreciated. I think you know nowadays everyone is looking at the difficulties that we have from on every angle, and um, there's so much information out there. There's a lot of criticism. There's a lot of support, but you kind of hear it all. Uh, Back in the period of time where my mom was serving, I really think that it was an extraordinarily strong patriotism that uh, really didn't, you know, there just wasn't the venue for online or Facebook pages where people were saying anything negative about. Uh, But women really came forward. They they worked not only overseas, but they were working in the factories in the U.S. building those planes. My two of my aunts were wax. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Townsend's uh, mother's cousin, Roz, was uh, was Rosie the Riveter. That's who they modeled (laughs) that off of. (laughs) On the airplane, right? Wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, that was... Cousin Roz. My so, goodness, uh, the history that you guys have. Yeah, it's it's really funny. Um, you know, there were so many things that that influenced growing up with my mom that, you know, came from that perspective. Like, okay, so now she's had three girls, and the 60s hit. And we all remember how fascinating a period of time that was. Yes. Well, I had two older sisters and a, a suburban town that uh, the teenagers started to experiment with uh, drugs. And, of course, the parents were all talking about it and trying to manage it all. And, you know, my sisters were doing their experimenting. And because I was born in 55, so I was like 13 by 68, I'm just kind of watching this all going on. And one day, I was invited to go to, you know, a little dance or a party or something. And I'll never forget <laughs> my mother driving me to wherever I was going, said, well, now I know that there's going to be a lot of drugs and alcohol available to you at the parties that you're going to start going to. So I I recognize that all young people go through this, and it's part of life. So what I was thinking is I'm going to give you an option. If if you want a medical ID tag for your wrist or your ankle, or if you want one that goes around your neck, you can pick with all the your information on it. So 
when they get you to the hospital, <laughs> they'll know who to call. They'll know to call me. Oh well, my gosh! <laughs> what? That's quite what a, a technique. What a technique! <laughs> you know, she, it was hilarious because she has totally not come out going, "Now don't do drugs," and I don't want you to. T-. Nope. It was like, "Yep, it's going to be all you out try there." It, I just. If you wind I up in the hospital, they'll call me. Yeah, they'll call. And so, of course, I have images of lying in a morgue with a toe tag, oh you know, gosh. unidentified Jane Did you wear it? Did you wear oh. the bracelet? Did you wear the ID? No, I, no it was the technique she used. <gasps> oh, I thought she was really terrifying. me. No, it was a te- technique she used. <laughs> she, she was smart as a fox. She knew me. So well, she knows that's all she had to say, and I would be terrified that you know I'd end up in the hospital. So, uh, and I I used it myself. So it, with my kids, and I I realized, oh, don't come at this directly because you're just going to walk into a resistance, resistance. of oh, mom, you yeah. don't know, you know. So what I did is just say, oh my God. Let me. Did I ever tell you about the time my mother scared the pants off of me? And then they, had, my children, had the image of them lying in a morgue with a toe tag. Oh my gosh! <laughs> did your mom know and understand each of you individually? Could she pick out exactly who needed what and and what they their wants and needs were? Because my mom was very good at that. Each of our characters and disciplines. Well, it's. It's, uh, it was a complicated group of three girls. So with my sister Carol, to this day, no one knows what would work for Carol, including Carol. So my mother was pretty much at a loss, and it was a hit-and-miss um, proposal for Carol. You know, sometimes She's the oldest. you could just... Yeah, some, you know, okay. it was a very volatile personality. With my sister Barbara had a strange kind of series of accidents and illnesses that were severe and life-threatening. And so my mother would spring into the surgical nurse mode, and the backfire on that was that Barbara started to feel that she was being overprotective, over, um, you know, kind of, my mother was always over-concerned with every sneeze. And so with these two, I will have to say, just more difficult um, children, I kind of bumped along with my scraped knees and my, you know, kind of happy-go-lucky, I think I'll go play in the backyard mode. (laughs) You were a gift to your mom. You really helped your mom in that respect. Yeah, and, um, you know, to this day, I think I was, it was just a relief to her that I, it wasn't like one more difficult. Sure. Um, oh my gosh, it's such scenario. a gift when you have one child who is just happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and it, I, you know, I was definitely happy-go-lucky. I mean, but a lot of it is because of the tensions in the household. I, you know, created my own little. I mean, you know, it's kind of a cliche to say I created my own little world. It wasn't really so much as that, but my own set of interests that kept me uh, busy. There were um, definitely neuroses that I had because of um, she, you know, definitely was a germaphobe coming. One of the 
things that she did during the war was she was on the Red Cross boat. That was a decoy boat that went through the Mediterranean and up, and uh, they liberated Dachau. So um, when you were talking about how your dad didn't talk about certain things, that's one thing my mom wouldn't talk about. But she was with a group of... um, of doctors and nurses that lived at Dachau. But one thing was she did become quite a germaphobe. And it took it took me a while to kind of work through that, but I went to camp as a little kid, and that helped. You know, because living outdoors, I just became a little dirty. bit... You could get dirty, and it was okay. Yeah, I could get dirty, and, it, and everyone was getting dirty and, and whatnot, but... Um, uh, Did you understand why she was that way when you were younger? Did you know about her experiences overseas as a kid? Or did she I, tell you as you got older in life? I think that it was more that my sisters and I kind of talked about it because it was like the kind of thing where, oh, no, we're not pulling over at a rest stop. You guys wait till you get home. And we're all in the backseat of the car with our teeth floating kind what you know, and so we kind of realized, you know, growing up, um, that oh, you know, mom, mom can't handle that. And um, basically, one of the things that I'm trying to help with now at 104 with um, COVID, the people who are the aides and the nurses at the care facility where she is are all gowned up often the relationships that she has created have become a little abstract because of all of the um, protective PPE. And um, it's so, here we are, you know, all the way down the road, and it's still really difficult for her to uh, be comfortable with a lot of things. You know, it just is a, it was permanent, a permanent life change. reality mm-hmm. perspective is completely changed now. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> What happened to all the people yeah. I knew that were taking care of me? They were so nice and friendly, and I could see their face. But she also, yeah, she was two years old during the Spanish flu, too. Yeah, she was two years old in the Spanish flu. So technically, it's her second pandemic, but she's pretty much as aware now as she was when she was two. <laughs> right. Well, we ha- that happens. <laughs> we become very well, young again well, toward the end of our journey, <laughs> or closer to well, our yeah journey. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, she basically has a, um, a reset button where, you know, she's got about, uh, oh, and I would say about 60 seconds where she's totally with you and totally getting it all, but then it resets. And, um, you know, she just is, is kind of in that Groundhog Day thing. But that's fine because then you can just start, start talking or getting again. her... <laughs> yeah. Well, you get her talking about some of the things in the past that are, aren't in her short-term memory, but are in her long-term memory. And uh, and that's when some of these great stories come out. Like, I, I was showing her some old photographs and the other day, and she looked at me laughing and goes, well, this just beats the Dutch. And, I, <laughs> and Tom, my husband, Townsend, and I looked at each other and go... Okay, we'll be looking that up. Well, we looked it up and it had to do, it was an expression that came about from way back when Manhattan was sold 
for you know twenty four dollars. Oh and, my uh, gosh! You know, buy the you know the Dutch the made Dutch. such a great deal and. <laughs> Oh, wow. Wow. At 104, she's still throwing new things out at us. All right, Louise. I know. I know. She really is something. Uh, We, you know, call her the ever-ready bunny. She's, uh, She's going. Your mom, you said she supported you and you're an artist and and. Rick and I, my husband and I, went to see your work, which was absolutely spectacular, your Requiem show. Can you just share with my Should Have Listened to My Mother listeners what your work was about? Because I know Townsend was busy helping you, too. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I actually went on a, a, a wonderful boat trip, Malak System, about 25 years ago, uh, the lock system in Russia. So we traveled from St. Petersburg to Moscow on basically the, the this river, and we would stop in these really extraordinarily small bergs along the way and see these incredible churches and just, you know, things that you just don't, you know, you just don't get to know about Russia. And um, it was... A real eye opener. The art that doesn't really leave the country was exposed to me, and I was just overwhelmed with the extraordinary. The Byzantine work was just what really spoke to me. And you know, cocktail Tom Towns and I would be sitting there, and going, "Oh, I really feel like this could influence my artwork." And he would tease me, going, "Well, what are you going to do? Come home and..." paint icons of all your friends and family members. I said, yeah. Well, that's one idea. But it jived really closely with another love that I have, which is came from my mom, animals. Uh, That was one of the things that we've always had in common is this really strong uh, attachment to mammals in particular. So I started painting um, extinct and endangered animals and birds and, and reptiles, insects, and uh, painting them with, an, um, you know, kind of an homage to the Byzantine icon work that I saw in Russia, you know, using a lot of the same materials and the colors, some of the formats, and then just something... Uh, again, (laughs) influenced by my mom, Um, you know, having come out of the Depression, you know, those drawers full of rubber bands and, you know, you don't throw anything Mm -hmm. out because you're challenged to find things. Uh, I started building, with my husband's help, um, all of the framework for these icons out of recycling um, furniture. And so they have, they kind of have a, a, an altar feel to them uh, that some of the things that I saw in Russian graveyards that were very, very old that had kind of a three-dimensional wooden gravestone as opposed to stone, it was wood. You know, places to put candles and, you know, stones when you visit it. And um, I started to kind of give that kind of feel to my work. And um, I actually was supposed to have a show in May, but, of course, you know, I put it off because gathering um, <laughs> gathering in large groups is frowned upon. But hopefully, you know, I will have that 
coming up again. And um, it, it, one thing I'm really glad is that uh, Townsend, uh, he got my mom over to see my last show, and, you know, that was really great. He carried her up the steps, and she really, uh, she were, she was really amazed that I had put together that group of work, and I, I was really touched that she was able to see it. So I'm still working. Unfortunately, there's a lot of animals and birds to paint, um, and it's getting worse by the day. But um, it helps to bring the stories um, to people's attentions about how these animals, what what was behind their extinction. And these are not the um, really old extinctions. These are everything, you know, from 1700s forward. And current, even you know, nineteen. I mean, excuse me, two thousand thirteen, two thousand fifteen. You know, there's many animals being added to the list, and just what caused their demise. So there's that story is um, is always um, kind of posted next to the artwork, and then I give a percentage of my um, of my profit to the IUCN, which is the International Union for the Conservation of Na- of Nature, based out of um, Switzerland. So the, they are kind of the top source for the statistics about the different species, as well as plants. Plant it's a full well. circle that you're able to give not only in your art a reflection of your mom and her influence on you, and you now giving an ode or token of remembrance for these animals that mean so much to you and and letting people know about it and then giving the money back, which is pretty great. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's very fulfilling. Uh, I think it was really because of the education that my mom pushed for. And that's another interesting thing. Her grandmother went to college. Her mother did not, but it was really remarkable that her grandmother went to college. So when my mom went to the war, that was during the years that she would have gone to college, but that wasn't available to her. So after she raised her kids, when she was 60, Your she mom. went to college. And she what got did a, she study? Yep. And she got a degree mm-hmm. in history. History, And uh, then she started working at Princeton University. And when she was 90, she she asked them if she could reduce her work week to three days instead of five, and they said no. And what? <laughs> she was driving and cruising. Wait, what was she doing for Princeton? Uh, she worked in their housing department, and she was like the welcome wagon for uh, international professors and their families who were coming for either, uh, you know, just more grad work or for teaching. Or and for, they you said, know, no, <laughs> they're lost. <laughs> there was my, my sunny mom, and she, and that she was also, um, was, uh, was overseeing uh, renovations for different buildings, so making sure that they were pulling asbestos out and putting this back in and putting, you know, and just working on all the different um, small housing things. So I hope I'm doing that at 90 years old. Louise Moon Alcott is quite the inspiration. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm telling you, she is. She is indeed. I really, um, I really think that it's uh, interesting to realize that you know I had one parent who was extremely positive and influential, and one who was not, and a lot of tension. But it it makes me very sensitive to my friends and co-workers and whatnot because, you know, having had good and bad, you know, it, it makes, I really understand the, the importance of understanding that not everybody is as fortunate. Boy, and that goes a long way, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, really, really does. Yeah, it seems like you guys have a great relationship. What um I'm curious, what was it like when you introduced your mom to Townsend, who's your now husband? Well, it was really funny because Townsend was um he you know, he's very close with my mom, very close. And like this is everything you need to know about my mom in a way. I have now invited Townsend to come and meet my parents. I am all of you know, what, 18 years old, I'm madly in love with him, I'm upstairs, you know, putting on the mascara, and Townsend's coming, and I didn't hear the car pull up, and all of a sudden, I hear the door open, I hear my mom go, oh, good, you're here, and um, come in, and I go bombing down the stairs around the corner, you know, like trying to manage the situation so it's perfect, and my mother, Townsend steps in, it's dark, my mother goes, oh, good, you're tall. Follow me. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. You know, she had something she couldn't reach because she's only 5'2". Oh. And, of course, you know, he's 6'3". And <laughs> Joey's the rest tall is guys, history. Right? whatever. <laughs> but that was it. They, they were off and running. But that, I ne- they never looked back. Oh, what a great attitude to have. I'm Jackie Tantillo, and you're listening to Should Have Listened to My Mother. You can find out more about Jody Miller Alcott's artwork at a gallery in Hopewell, New Jersey, Morpeth Contemporary, M-O-R-P-E-T-H. Jody Miller Alcott, thank you so much for joining me on Should Have Listened to My Mother. Oh, thank you so much, Jackie. I so enjoyed it. And say hello to your mom. I will. I will. <laughs> <laughs>